0: When the Second Amendment was drafted, there was no such thing as a protection order. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, October 6th. This is In The Moment. Coming up this hour, we preview the upcoming U.S. Supreme Court term, and we'll talk about a case that would allow persons subjected to domestic violence restraining orders to keep their firearms. Mike Thompson is our guest. We'll talk with a scientist hoping to build a more unifying model of the inner workings of planet Earth. We'll chat with artist Jerry Fogg about his artistic inspiration. Laura Rohde takes us out for a ranch roundup, plus a new installment of Fresh Tracks. Sends you into the weekend dancing. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Banned Books Week is coming to a close, but for the Intellectual Freedom Committee, the topic is always top of mind. The American Library Association states, Banned Books Week offers an opportunity for readers to voice censorship concerns, celebrate free expression, and show their communities the importance of intellectual freedom. Nancy Swenson is chair of the South Dakota Library Association Intellectual Freedom Committee, and she's with me now on the phone. Nancy, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Hello, thanks for having me. Lots of good conversations this week across the state, particularly in libraries. Tell me some of the current um, concerns or, um, you know, celebratory ideas about intellectual freedom in South Dakota.
1: Um, You know, I think librarians and library staff got into the field because they're excited about reading. Um, They're excited about sharing that love. They're excited about um, introducing readers of all ages to new new books, new stories, um, you know, new cultures and places, and all of the all of the information you can get out of a book, um, fiction or nonfiction. And so, um, you know, when we're talking about censorship and we're talking about banning books, um, that's. That's, very, uh, that's a very tough topic for librarians because we just want to share all of that um, love of reading with everyone. And so this week is just a really, um, a really good chance for, for libraries in our state and across the country to just reinforce that um, libraries are here. Libraries uh, should reflect the communities that they're in um, with the materials that they purchase and that um, they're a safe space for everyone.
0: What does the Intellectual Freedom Committee do? What kind of work do you do throughout the year?
1: Sure. So our our goal for the Intellectual Freedom Committee is to offer resources and support um, to libraries in South Dakota related to intellectual freedom. Um, And often intellectual freedom gets kind of bunched up into book banning and censorship, but that's a broader term. Um, Just access to information, whether that be books or um, learning resources or um, online resources, um, it's a, it's a broader term, um, but banned books is definitely the focus as of late um, for the last few years. Yeah. So, um, the, so we're just here to support our libraries. Yeah.
0: Li- libraries are a place where you can encounter all kinds of ideas. As a librarian, there's things in every library that offend you too, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There's, there are we definitely are purchasing things that I have zero interest in reading or um, watching or consuming, and that's fine. That's, that's what libraries should should do. They should have something for everyone, even if it doesn't appeal to everyone.
0: Yeah. Uh, communities want that, too, largely. I mean, there, there are noteworthy exceptions, but are you finding that throughout South Dakota, uh, community support comes from people who, who want more intellectual freedom rather than more restrictions?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think... You know, and when we're talking about this, um, you know, I think it's important to, to remember that the people that are bringing challenges are typically bringing them from a place of concern. So it, it can sometimes get adversarial, and I, I don't want to encourage that. You know, those people are challenging books because they're afraid of what's in them um, and, in, in general, um, afraid of children accessing what's in them. Um, but they are uh, pretty typically just the vocal minority um, so largely our communities in this state and in this country, they, they, they have um, shown through different ways that they, they want those books there. Um, they want that information accessible. And ultimately, um, you know, especially when we're talking about books for children, they want each family to be able to decide what is, um, what is important for their family to read, to consume. Um, they don't want people making decisions for them on what's accessible for them to read.
0: Do good things come out of book challenges in the sense that um, can a good conversation come from questions about material or access to Internet services or access to information? What's the best possible scenario for you when something pops up in a community library and a public library and people say, well, wait a minute, now let's talk about this. Are you seeing good conversations happen?
1: I, I absolutely think there can be some good outcomes because at the very least, hopefully people are coming into those conversations with open minds um, and willing to understand um, what what the other person is bringing to the conversation and finding a compromise um, that, that resolves the issue. But the open-mindedness, I think, is the important part. And I do think there are some people who um, you know, maybe challenge books that they're uncomfortable with. And ultimately, come out with a better understanding of why those books are in libraries and why it's important that they stay there.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, any final thoughts on what community members can do, especially in uh, rural towns, where they have a, a smaller library staff or you know a smaller budget? What can we do to support our libraries year-round?
1: Um, you know, at the at the very core of it, um, go to your library. You know, go. Um, Check out materials, even if you're not a reader, you know, libraries often have books, um, DVDs, movies, games. They have a wide variety of things that are available to check out. So go utilize your community library if you want to support um, that, the library and the, you know, access to information and the freedom to read. Um, you know, talk with your library staff if you're concerned. Ask them if there's anything you can help with, if there's anything um, they should be um, advocating for in the community um, they, you know the library staff are the experts on what they need so if you get get that information from them that's that's helpful um, and then ultimately you know when it comes if, if you hear that there are challenges happening in your community um, find out either from staff or other community members how you can show your support um, whether that's being you know showing up for a school board meeting or a um, board of trustees meeting sending an email to people you um, Sending an email to your city council, or when we get into, um, you know, legislative sessions, mm-hmm. sending an email to your legislators. So just communicating across your community what you support and that you are there for um, the access to information.
0: Yeah. Just have a conversation with another parent who sees the world differently than you. Build those relationships so everybody yes. knows this is more than something that you tweet about left and right. This is something that, uh, you know, that you have relationships over and it all happens in a library. My guest has been Nancy Swenson, chair of the South Dakota Library Association Intellectual Freedom Committee. Nancy, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. What's going on beneath your feet right now? I'm not talking about the surface level. What's going on miles and miles and miles below your feet right now? That is a question Dr. Gocha Ustinesik is using big data to explore. Dr. Ustinisik is an associate professor of geology and geological engineering at South Dakota Mines. Her work collecting data related to Earth's inner geologic processes was awarded a five year National Science Foundation grant. And she's with me now from STPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio to dig into that data. Dr. Ustinasek, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Good morning, Alan. So much of this is the research that you're doing is about connecting research across the globe. Tell me a little bit about some of the challenges and the research questions you're trying to address.
2: Well, probably for every geologist or geochemist, data, um, or in any any science, physics, chemistry, data is the thing that we deal with when we do experiments. When we go out the field, that's what we collect. The Problem, the challenge is we all do it differently from one another uh, and we report them differently. Mm -hmm. So, developing an infrastructure uh, to um, have a common language of what we record. What we say, what we collect will help not only the future research, but help the current understanding of the um, problems about the, how the earth works, how the earthquakes happen, how the volcanoes erupt. Um, uh, how the magma rises to the surface and uh, causes these big eruptions So one of the challenge is as uh, you ask is to bring all the researchers around the globe, not only in the United States but all over the world to contribute their data um, to this to this uh, common, data library so that we can process this data and figure out the quality of the data so that we can uh, plan our new experiments based on what we know, what we do not know, and the people who use this data to model the big processes that's happening on the earth.
0: Is it more about aligning the data and making sure that you're that you're understanding the the, the good data, if you will, or is it a matter of weeding out things that haven't been developed in appropriate scientific ways? It is actually both. Uh, okay.
2: So uh, <laughs> you, you, you put your finger on something very right. Um, so, uh, yes, one is, I mean, all these experiments are, or the, or the data that's collected are mostly correct. The problem is how we report them. And if we don't report them right, you know, I can tell you a story of mine. Yes. Somebody can tell you a story of theirs. But if it is done in a, in a common language, when you are trying to compile that, it will be very hard for you to develop a story, right? So that's what we are trying to do. In the meanwhile, yes, there's no wrong data, but there is missing data which okay. is they don't always report everything on the experiments they do. And I'm an experimental patrologist. I do run experiments by myself. So I know what is necessary for a person. Uh, it's like following a recipe, you know. Uh, if a person want to check my work, they should have all the Things necessary there. I can't just tell them I'm gonna add a pinch of salt. <laughs> I need to tell them I'm so how much salt I am adding. Right. That kind of thing. When we talk about data, it is it is it is a um, it's it's a mathematical information, and um, remember, data is coming from the field or experimental research as an input. As an output, sorry, but then it becomes an input to the things that we cannot uh, go ahead and do experiments on, or we cannot go collect uh, field, do field work on like other planetary materials. So again, this not relates to this. Uh, planet, but also other planetary uh, environments that we do not have uh, actual samples on. So in that case, we use this data. If the data is correct, then we can develop our models using that data to understand other planets.
0: Oh, okay. So I have a couple questions about that. And one is this idea of developing a better model, a more unifying model, Mm -hmm. is uh, key, and that's the main focus of this, but then I'm also wondering if the process of aligning data is useful and the way you do it will be useful to people in other sciences. Absolutely.
2: Okay. Absolutely. Um, you know, um, Because like most of my work I do is geochemistry, and I use a lot of chemistry and the physics of the materials. Mm -hmm. And the the way that how the modelers that use our data uses basically mathematics. So if you can do this correctly, it will help to not only geology, but basic sciences such as physics, chemistry, or math, or even biology. Uh, When you are Dealing with, for example, uh, microbes in your experiments. Some of the work I do is involving that. So that deals directly to the microbiology. And if I can do this right, then they will have the correct information they need to make their models go as they go further so it's not only for geology it's it's affecting every 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 probably solid science and at the end engineering is using the science and to develop problems right Mm -hmm. Uh, and then that the, so the wha- how we do things right will help the engineers to solve their problems or uh, to to find applications for the for
0: the real wor- world.
2: So in a way, it is like an interconnected yeah.
0: um, uh,
2: thing. Is that answer your question?
0: It, it does. And fascinating stuff. It's a, a five year. This particular National Science Foundation grant is um, a, a five year project building this big picture understanding. But Clearly, there's m- much more going on <laughs> than just uh, one grant, as significant as it is. So, thank you so much. Yes, right, and, go ahead
2: and. And then, you know, we have been, uh, this is uh, has been a collaborative effort uh, with Columbia University in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am the PI of the grant, and my co-PI is Roger Nielsen, who is a research faculty here at SD Mines. And we have a lot of graduate students working along the way with us. And it would be literally impossible. And mm-hmm. I have been founded through this kind of a work through the NSF since 2017 yes. uh, continuously
0: because that they really like the work we do. Yeah, uh, absolutely, as do I. <laughs> Not that that <laughs> adds to the – but uh, we love hearing about it, is what I, I mean to say. South Dakotans love hearing about this research that's being done at MINE. So, Dr. Eustin Stick, thank you so much for being here with us. We'll talk to you next time. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The U.S. Supreme Court opens a new term on Monday, so it is time to check in on just a few of the cases worth watching. Mike Thompson is an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Sioux Falls, and he returns to our SDPB Kirby Family Studio with an update. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your time. One
3: of my happy places.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're yeah. happy when you're here. <laughs> um, it puts it really does put, I mean... Uh, into context so much of what ha- is happening in the U.S. Supreme Court um, better than a national news story, I find, because we get Good. to ask you questions that, you know, are relevant to how we think about these things. So Good. let's start with U.S. v. Rah- Rahimi? Rahimi. Rahimi, yeah, mm-hmm. the gun this, case. This is a gun case, and yep. then a lot of South Dakotans will want to hear about this.
3: Can I back up just a second so people know can. how yeah. cases get to the U.S. Supreme Court? So the U.S. Supreme Court... Is the only court created by the Constitution. All other courts are created by Congress. The court uh, has what is called discretionary appellate jurisdiction, which means they can pick and choose the cases they want to decide from the lower courts. If they want to decide a case, they issue a what's called a writ of certiorari to the lower court, which means send us up the record. We're going to decide this case, and if they Don't want to, then they deny a writ of certiorari. Uh, And the the weird thing it was weird to me is that it only takes four of the nine to issue the writ of certiorari. It's not a majority decision about what cases they want to hear. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, So this United States versus Rahimi, uh, this case decided by the the Fifth Circuit, uh, which is uh, had is having a couple of its at least a couple of its decisions scrutinized by the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: That's not necessarily a positive thing or it is a, it's an intentional thing. What can you tell if one circuit has like a lot of cases this term? Does that meaningful at all to you?
3: It is a little bit. The Fifth Circuit sort of become the new Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit was the typically writs of cert were granted to hear Ninth Circuit cases and typically the Ninth Circuit was reversed. That's I think it is significant that these cases are, these are, these are more like, they're like test cases, like people go out and they uh, try to establish standing to bring a certain constitutional claim. And that's, that's sort of what these cases look like out of the Fifth Circuit. Okay. Um, But this, and of course, to understand the Second Amendment, we need a little uh, background. The, um. Course, it's part of the Bill of Rights ratified in 1791 that we have the right to keep and bear arms. In the 1930s, there was a case called U.S. versus Miller, and that was the precedent for the Supreme Court until uh, Heller, which was in D.C. versus Heller, which was in 2008. U.S. versus Miller, the 1930s case, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the right to bear arms is a collective right, it's tied to use of an arm in a militia and so as long as the, it was a wet kind of a weapon focused analysis in that case where if the weapon bears a reasonable relation to what uh, would have been used in a militia then it's it's part of the arms that we can bear so that was the precedent for until we get to dc versus heller in 2008 And in that case, that's where Justice Scalia spent many, many pages uh, talking about the prefatory clause of the Second Amendment and the operative clause of the Second Amendment and reached the conclusion that, no, the uh, Second Amendment is an individual right to bear arms. It's not a collective right. So it is an individual right. Hmm. It's... uh, the in the way he got around us versus miller is he said first of all he said well the the reach of the second amendment or the interpretation of the second amendment wasn't the issue in miller and then he also said that miller was decided on grounds other than the second amendment anyway he got around that in his an opinion got a majority for that and said it's a it's an individual right and the right to self defense in the home is part of and historical um, use of a gun. Okay. Guns in the home for self defense.
0: Pretty, pretty important. We're still yeah. l- living with that decision in, in significant ways. Exactly. Okay. And then,
3: so in 2008, Scalia decides that case. In 2010, the US Supreme Court finally said that the Second Amendment is incorporated. In the Due Process Clause of the 14th. So the Bill of Rights as originally ratified limited only the power of the federal government. And the Supreme Court, beginning uh, 1860s-ish, started uh, on, a, on, a, on a case-by-case basis applying the Bill of Rights limitations to state governments. So the second is the last one to Mm. be applied to state governments. So until 2010, the Second Amendment limited only the power of the federal government, did not limit the power of the states. So that's a really new development, uh, relatively, I guess. So
0: broadly speaking, the right to bear arms is getting more protected?
3: Yeah, I think that's through, fair to through say. Through
0: that through that time. Right. Okay. I think through the, those decisions it's now an individual right. Now the states can't infringe upon it. It's it's it was always very entrenched in the bill of rights but now it's even more so. Yes. It's harder think, and harder to, to to dismantle it in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I agree
3: with that. It's more the the right to bear arms of second amendment is now uniform. The limitations yeah. are uniform across the United States, which can help uh, lawyers predict What's going to happen uh, because it's uniform, right? Uh, so okay, we'll see. so
0: this case, yeah, this fella,
3: yeah, Rahimi. Um, the since nineteen, I think Miller was nineteen. It was nineteen thirty-six ni- in the nineteen thirties, um, and then since then, Congress has, of course, tried to regulate guns on a number of levels. And uh, Title eighteen of the United States Code, section nine twenty-two. Is, is the big section on what's unlawful to do with a weapon uh, in the United States. One of those provisions, uh, 922G8, says that uh, if you are subject to a state restraining order um, that involves, there are a couple of caveats to it, that involves domestic violence, you can't, or if you have a misdemeanor conviction for domestic violence, you can. it's unlawful for you to own a weapon. So Rahimi, and I, I want to, he is, uh, I, I think you could credibly say he's a gun user. Uh, he was, in, this is, these are from the facts of the case. Between December 2020 and t- January 21, he was involved in five shootings in and around Arlington, Texas. So he's firing shots into houses. Uh, he's in a car accident. He shot at the other driver. So, in the process of investigating the shootings, the Arlington Police got a search warrant for his house and found a rifle and a pistol. After that, they they found out that he was subject to a restraining order because of allegations of abuse against his former girlfriend. Uh, and procedurally, it's necessary to know that uh, they went to a hearing on this on the ex girlfriend's protection order petition. And Rahimi showed up and agreed that she should have the restraining order. That uh, So he essentially admitted that he's a danger to her. So he does that. And then uh, um, so he had the restraining order in place before the search warrant. They find the guns, find out he's got a restraining order. That's a violation of 922 G8. So then he is indicted for that. Convicted of that, and then he appeals, stating that 922 G8 um, violates my right to bear arms. And the the thing about that issue is there are so many federal circuit courts of appeal decisions on that issue, and most of them have determined that no, it's not a violation. But that was of course under uh, the Miller the Miller test, and now In 2022, the Justice Thomas's opinion in the New York versus Bruin case has has, according to some people, has really expanded the right.
0: That was the case where you could take the gun for a walk, essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Okay. Exactly. Didn't have to be. I'm defending my home in my home. Right. It could be. I'm. I'm going. I can carry it on the street as part of self-defense. And right. Okay.
3: And I don't have to show a particularized need ne- yeah. for the weapon, right? Yeah. So, he, the, and now the Fifth Circuit said, they agreed with Rahimi. They said, yeah, you're right. This, this violates your right to bear arms so the conviction is reversed. So that's, so we've got, we've got this big conflict among the circuit courts, yeah. federal circuit courts about whether it's constitutional or not.
0: Okay, so here's one of the things I find interesting because often we will talk about this idea of at the time of the founding, what was the intent? And it will usually be something about what kind of guns existed. Right. Yep. Um, and what they were used for and whatnot. But th- in this case, since you're talking about domestic violence, that wasn't even, I mean, women were kind of, children right. were kind of property at that, but there wasn't the protect, I guess there's no such thing as a protection order back then legally. And, you know, communally, there might have been consequences for domestic violence. But historically, we know that particularly women were often subjected to perfectly legal sexual assault and physical abuse abuse in the home. That has changed. Does that matter in the arguing of this case or is that just an interesting side note?
3: Uh, um, Well, in... In Bruin, uh, Thomas talked about the uh, the fact that if you are a person, um, I'm, I'm looking for his uh, qu- his quotation. He talks about if uh, the gun was around um, during if if it's part of the uh, historical tradition of the United States. The the regulation, if it was part of the historical tradition of the United States. The the court is um, pretty re- clear, I think, after Heller that it's okay to deny a felon the right to possess a, a firearm, and it's okay to deny the mentally ill the right to possess a firearm. But so far, that's all they've recognized traditionally. Okay. And with restraining orders and misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence, the court Person who is subject to the order, or convicted is not convicted is not a felon. So, they're going to have to they're going to have to figure that out. There's a really and I uh, there's a really interesting to me part of the Bruin case, the 2022 case. Uh, and I hope this doesn't get too arid. But uh, usually, when a legislature Legislatures are always drawing distinctions. So when a legislature draws a distinction based on a fundamental right, like the right to bear arms, the courts will usually use a certain type of lens to review whether that's constitutional. So we have three levels of these lenses called scrutiny. Um, Thomas says, and, and again, federal circuit courts after Heller developed this two-part test Mm-hmm. about the gun and does it survive one of these scrutinies. Uh, Thomas said, we're not going to scrutinize anymore. If it's rooted in the historical tradition, the use of the gun or the gun itself, then, then it's fine. It's up to the government to show that it's not. So if I am a gun owner, I, I come into court with the presumption that my possession is legal. And it's up to the government to show how no According to the historical tradition of the United States, it's not legal.
0: So if you are hoping to win this case on behalf of the gun owner, does it matter in this case that the gun owner is not a hunter and that he has these other violations? Does this make us a weaker case? Or, I mean, it's not like he's just saying oh, I want to keep my gun for hunting and for self-defense. I mean, he's used this in ways that he's been charged with before that right. were inappropriate ways that he faced consequences for. Right? Does that matter in the yeah. argument? Not really. No, okay. it
3: doesn't matter in the argument really. Uh, Thomas said in the 2022 case he, he, t- he referenced law-abiding citizens more than once. So one of the arguments in Rahimi is that he's not a law-abiding citizen. Right. He's got a restraining order and he's got... Uh, against him, which indicates he's not abiding by the law. His counter to that is that the restraining order action is a civil action. It's not a criminal action. So I don't have any, I don't have, I don't have a conviction Okay. for that. So yeah, it, it'll, it'll be interesting. interesting to watch. <laughs> it'll yeah. be very interesting to watch.
0: I want to pivot real quick because I want to make sure we talk about a case that didn't make it yeah we've recently yeah. been talking about tribal sovereignty cases and there are none in front of this term which feels significant to me tell me a little yeah. bit about Indian law cases that didn't get the writ of cert the uh what how do I say the word that, that
3: certiorari certiorari but Thank you, you practice you'll, that you'll sound like <laughs> you're in the know if you just say cert
0: take that to your dinner party this <laughs> <Right. weekend. Certiorari. laughs>
3: <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's one case on, on tribal immunity, sovereign immunity that the court didn't grant certiorari on. It, it's a, it is a case with South Dakota Connection. It's called Bird Industries versus the Tribal Business Council of the Three Affiliated Tribes. The Three Affiliated Tribes are our North Dakota uh, organization. Um, Bird is, and this is sort of unique in the facts bird is actually an enrolled member of the three affiliated tribes she entered into a construction contract her company's located in brookings she entered into a construction contract with the three affiliated tribes and uh, um, the tribe didn't pay the facts are kind of convoluted about how we get to this lawsuit but uh, her company bird Industries, sues the tribe for payment, they uh, for fraud, number of other uh, causes of action. And the question becomes, did the tribe waive its immunity and allow itself to be sued by her? Because tribes, according to Congress, tribes are sovereign and they're immune from suit unless there's a clear waiver of that immunity. And in this case, the federal court said that the tribe... Um, there was a contract that said we're going to resolve all disputes by arbitration. Yeah. The argument is uh, that contract waives your immunity because you agreed we're going to right. arbitrate, and uh, the federal court said no, that's not enough to waive waive your immunity. So I it it's it's uh I think a significant recognition again of the strength of tribal sovereignty in certain areas, and it's also significant that it's a tribal member versus her tribe.
0: Sure.
3: And, and there's still there's immunity.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Mike Thompson will have many more conversations as we watch the, the court and the arguments that come before it this term. Thank you so much for being here with us. We'll Thanks, will So come back and talk about the First Amendment case because that's another interesting yes, one. the social media As we cases. head into uh, election season. Yes. <laughs> it is. We're not there yet. No, no. All right. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, you have only a few weeks left to catch a powerful art exhibition at the Center for Western Studies. That's at Augustana University in Sioux Falls. Contemporary Plains Indian Art features the work of four famous South Dakotan and Native American artists. It features artists Arthur Amiot, Jerry Fogg, Donald Montalou, and of course, Oscar Howe. Well, we are pleased to welcome Jerry Fogg back to the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Jerry, welcome back to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Um, such an admirer of the work that you do and the way that you are in community, not only with your visual art, but with storytelling and the way you present your art in the world. Tell me how you sort of see the role of a contemporary artist in not explaining the art, but also having conversations about art?
4: Well, first of all, I have a problem walking through doorways. My head is so big. <laughs> being, in, being in a show with Oscar Howe, Donald Monolo, and Art Amiat. My goodness gracious. I'm so honored. Uh, it, the artwork that we have put out that sits on the wall of uh, people's choice to like or not like is done by them in their own way their own fashion their own what comes from the heart every piece that i do i i make i've taken apart so many times and added and subtracted and i try my best to get a point across to the public without trying to explain explain the picture first let them see for themselves what it is about, you know, and when I talk to someone, I say, well, what do you see in it? And they say, well, I see this, I see that, I see that, and of course, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And in doing so, they, you know, they they feel more comfortable. So it's more than just doing the piece and putting it up there. I like to be participant Mm. in talking about it, showing it and explaining the story behind it, what it has meaning and for the past, present or future.
0: When I went to see Dakota Modern at the South Dakota Art Museum in Brookings and stood in front of Oscar House original work, I had only stood in front of prints in the past, mm-hmm. which are amazing. But when I looked at the original work, my mind just shattered to the ground and was put together in fractals. At the end of that, um, when I look at your work, I see this similar mind expanding, time and intricacy, and the. It's about a lot more than the finished product.
4: Yes, it, it's you know when when I do finish a product, I, I got to make sure that it's going to say, what it has what it has to say, yeah. for a person to come along and look at it. And Oscar Howe, he was he was good at that because he would show you a mysticism all around and then it would bring you into the picture to see exactly what he was putting out there.
0: Yeah.
4: And then, of course, when you look at the title, that just adds to the <laughs> euphoria you have from seeing one of his originals or even one of his copies.
0: When you do your work, there are often objects that are... Of three dimension as well as you know, uh, sort of a a two dimensional materials. Tell me a little bit about your your collecting and organizing and arranging process. Like, what do those objects mean to you? Do they help? Do they find their way into the art on their own? Are you categorical about it? Is it (laughs) sort of a left brain or a right brain thing for you? Is what I'm kind of getting at.
4: I have been uh, a person of luck, I, I would say, you know, because that does exist, even though people don't like to say it does, to find things that I have an ideal for. And I go out and I look and I say, well, this isn't exactly what I'm looking for. But when I put it with these pieces, it comes to life in itself. And, you know, it, it's design and repetitive, repetitive design work in, in, mm-hmm in our art that's what we were all about long ago we just made sure the message was put out there by illustrating to let you know that's that's what it stands for
0: do you agree with or how has the state you know what Oscar Howe did to tell the world that the world doesn't get to shackle native artists into one idea of what their art is supposed to look like. Exactly. How has that impacted you as an artist? The work that he did to sort of, you know, verbally say to them, in writing, say to the world, I refute your idea of what Indian art is. Mm-hmm. It is this. It is this thing that I am doing.
4: Well, see, you know, people have their own objectives, their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own submissions to what they're going to make, what, what, you know, what they want and look at. My personal opinion on it is, I am Native American, I did this piece of artwork, it's Native American art. You know, like the Renaissance, they got their, Hmm. this is Renaissance art, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's good, because who did it was Renaissance period. But no, it's, it's a way of me expressing myself, and I usually, you know, when I walked around the show that's going on there, I kind of seen a a way of describing it to myself. I looked at Oscar Howe, he was a person who put paint on canvas in his own way. And then I looked further and I seen Donna Monolo took that and put a different background behind it and put art on there as he wants to know it. And then I look at Arthur Amiot, he went and took pieces of uh, collage and made his expression. And then I, I feel like I'm about almost like the last straw. You know, I, I put it on there, the only way we could do it any more than mine is do it uh, in, in a video where you walk into the picture. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it seems like a, a step of going around yeah. and finding who we are and what we do.
0: I see your art um, in multiple places, not just in a- exhibition. Um, you did a piece for the South Dakota State Poetry Society, Past mm. Petals Cover, and mm. I recognized it immediately as your work. Oh, thank you. And so then I start thinking about how much it means to me to, to sort of live surrounded by Jerry Fogg in the way that I have, and I hadn't thought of that before. I hadn't thought until I looked at that and said, oh, there's Jerry Fogg, and he is telling he's inviting me into this new space. Do you have a sense of or if you remember the, the um, mural at the Whittier um, uh, the, the large-scale outdoor mural at I't Meldrum Park, I can't remember the name of the park oh, yes, over in yeah. the, the Whittier yeah. neighborhood, we were Whittier part of like a committee where, mm-hmm. where you were in the room talking about what it meant to to have the colors in this space and so you are a part of an arts community that impacts me, even though I'm not an artist. Um, I have mean, like 30 seconds left, but so what do you want to say about like that inter- that relationship you have with community of, of non-artists?
4: Well see as an artist, you know I always put a statement to where I'm not only an artist. yeah I mean I'm not really so many degrees educated to be a teacher, but in my own heart and my own way of doing things, I am a teacher and I try to express. Native American teachings. And if I can put that out there to help things, be advocates for Hiawatha Indian Insane Asylum, Murdered Missing Women and Children, Blood Run, all these things put together, I make art for these, and it, it, it joyful, makes me feel good. To be able to be part of it in another way of just shaking my fist at it, I can put art up there and let people see it time after time.
0: Life-changing for our community. Jerry Fogg um, is one of the artists featured in Contemporary Plains Indian Art at the Center for Western Studies. You can only see that until Friday, October 20th, so stop by and see that. Jerry, nice to have you. Welcome back next time as well. Thanks for being here.
4: Always an honor.
0: Horses are still used to round up cattle on many Western South Dakota ranches. A rancher will often put their roping skills to use to catch a sick cow so they could administer medication. During the annual Rancher Roundup in Union Center, cowboys and cowgirls of all ages get to put their horsemanship, roping and other ranch skills to the test, held each summer in August. The ranch rodeo is a unique community tradition that draws hundreds to Union Center. Laura Rody with SDPB attended this year's event. She brings you this story from the Kamac Ranch Supply Rodeo grounds.
3: Right here, right now, we're watching Parker Wilcox. Let's go, Parker. That young man is all business, all business. No doubt about it. There's not a, not a smile, not nothing. He's concentrated on what he's doing.
5: Seven-year-old Parker Wilcox is focused as he trots his horse Cornbread toward the bucket at the far end of the arena. As he approaches, he drops his flag in the bucket and turns Cornbread around. Horse and rider race to the other end of the arena, and while Cornbread is on the move, Parker picks up a flag out of the second bucket. Seconds after entering the rodeo arena, he and Cornbread make their exit. Because you get to go fast and win the prizes. Parker and his twin brother Hayes competed in the flag race with about 75 other ranch kids. Flag so far is the funnest. The flag race is one of several youth events held during the annual Rancher Roundup. For the Wilcoxes, this ranch rodeo is a family affair. The twins' dad Brett helps with the flag race and competes in the afternoon ranch rodeo and their mom, Melissa, is the event's organizer. That's the best part of it, is being able to put on something that they can go do and watching them learn and grow and have fun. Like most families competing, the Wilcoxes ranch. So the horsemanship skills Parker and Hayes need for the flag race, poles, and barrel race are practiced daily. Um, you know, we, they do a lot of ranch riding, so learning just how to steer your horse, stop them and stuff, but they learn a lot just chasing cows and all of that kind of stuff too. And then there's the community aspect of the ranchers' roundup. You know, we, we're ranching all the time. We're busy, we're working. So this time of year for everybody to be able to step out of their haying equipment, but it's kind of that last chance before the fall. Everybody gets to step out and visit and talk about what's been going on this summer. Brett Wilcox agrees. The third generation Union Center rancher said now that haying season is wrapped up, he's ready for some friendly competition.
3: Well, they're all the guys that stood up with me at my wedding. They're all my friends, the guys I work with every day.
5: Stray gather, range doctor, trailer loading is the first event Brett's team competes in.
3: I think it's kind of goes back to what we do. If there's a bull with a sore foot, we load him in the trailer. If one needs doctored, we rope him and doctor him. So it's kind of what everybody's doing on a normal day.
5: But this is not your typical day on the ranch. The Rancher Roundup is a community tradition hosted by Kamak Ranch Supply for 21 years, Reed Kamak explained. Reed and his wife, Amber, are second generation owners. This year, they purchased the business from his parents, Gary and Amy. You know, for some of them, it is their first rodeo, and it's a good time. You know, the the locals just enjoy coming out, watching the local kids compete. And really, it's a regional deal. We have kids and, and families that come from a long ways, and some really good teams in the ranch rodeo that come in the afternoon as well. Real competitive regional cowboys that know how to sit a horse and know how to put on a good show in the arena. When ranch rodeo prizes are awarded, Brent Wilcox's team placed second, and Hayes Wilcox won the mutton-busting belt buckle. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura
0: Rohde. You can find and share this story on our website, sdpb.org news. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you. In the Moment is produced by Ellen Kester and Ari Youngman. Our executive producer is Kara Hetland. Josh Chilson is news director for South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Our videographer is Jordan Henderson. Our engineer is Colton Nicholson. You can find a lot of our interviews on our YouTube channel, and you can always send us ideas for the show at In the Moment at sdpb.org follow us on social media platforms sdpb news we're under and if you miss the show you can tune in to most podcast platforms and find in the moment as a podcast there from all of us at south dakota public broadcasting i'm Lori walsh thank you for listening